Uh, like I said, we're starting a new sermon series this week on the book of Ephesians. We're looking at the first 14 verses of Ephesians if you want to follow along in your Bible. I'll read those for us and then we'll talk about them. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of God. So this new sermon series that we're starting is called The Church, Foundation and Focus. And it's a study of the book of Ephesians. This past week, I was in Virginia Beach for a meeting, a convention of the district that we are part of in our church body, the North Atlantic District. Uh, it's all the churches up the eastern seaboard from North Carolina to uh, Ontario and Quebec. And as you can imagine, uh, when you get a whole bunch of pastors all together in the same room, one of the most common questions that is asked is, how's your church doing? And I wanted to share uh, the answer that I gave probably about 25 times uh, at this convention with you, because first of all, I think it's important for us to have clarity, like as a congregation, to know where we stand. But I think it's also valuable for us to consider as we start this study of Ephesians, because uh, what I said to people when they asked me the question, how is your church doing, is really what motivated me to pick this series for this summer at our congregation. So let me share with you what I said. I said, in the four years or so that I have been the pastor, we have changed everything about the church except the name. It's essentially a restarted church. We turned over all of our staff. We completely redid our ministry plan. We changed worship locations. And then we got a pandemic in one of the most locked down cities on earth. And during that time, we changed worship, we changed how we serve communion, and we changed our worship time. And so there's, there's really no foundation. There's no going back to any sort of normal that we had before. We, we really don't have a routine or, or traditions at our church. And that's a really great thing. That's not because the old way of doing things was bad, but what we get the chance to do now is rebuild on a biblical foundation. To say, what is a church? What is cross of life? 
Let's look at scripture. Let's find out. Let's find out what the Bible says a church is and what a church is supposed to do. And that's why we're studying the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is, in a sense, a manual of how to build a biblical church. You can actually see that from the context of the letter. Uh, the city of Ephesus was a, city on a, uh, was a port city excuse me, on the eastern side of the Aegean Sea. Um, it doesn't exist in its form like it was when the letter was written to that church, but uh, as you can imagine, as a port city on the Aegean Sea, it was a place where a lot of people were coming and going. It was a place that was, in a sense, a hub that you could send people out from. And because of that, the Apostle Paul put particular attention into this city. Uh, the book of Acts tells us that the Apostle Paul spent nearly three years in the city of Ephesus, which was uh, way longer than he spent in any other city. And because he spent that much time in the city of Ephesus, it became something of a hub of Christianity in that part of the world. The, the city of Ephesus actually housed what we might call the first seminary of pastors who were going out to the churches of what we would call um, the Middle East. So this, this letter that Paul writes is, in a sense, a manual of how to plant churches, if you will, or what church is supposed to be like. He's writing to these Ephesians and he's saying, here's what I want you to do as you continue to spread out. Another thing we can understand about this, though, is because this was a church that Paul may as well have called his home congregation. Um, these words that Paul writes are coming straight from his heart. Like, think, you know, your, your mother or your father on their deathbed, like the last thing they're going to say to you. That's what Ephesians is from Paul to the leaders in Ephesus. Paul writes this as he's in prison in Rome, about to die in the next couple years, to a congregation that he loves dearly. Again, the book of Acts tells us that when Paul left Ephesians, uh, Ephesus, excuse me, uh, he was on the beach, about to get on the ship to leave, and he's weeping and embracing these Ephesian elders. He loves them so dearly. And so as we see this manual, in a sense, of how to be a biblical church, let's also know that the Apostle Paul thinks this is one of the most important things that any Christian can understand. What does it mean to be the church? The letter of Ephesians breaks down really into two parts, and that's where the name foundation and focus come from. The first three chapters of this six-chapter book are focused on the foundation of the church. What is the church built on? Why does the church exist? The last half of the book, chapters four through six, focus on then what does the church do? What does its day-to-day -day look like? So like I said, we're going to work, work through this entire book um, in the next couple weeks. But today we're looking just at these first 14 verses. And uh, if you were listening to those verses and you thought to yourself, this kind of sounds like spiritual white noise, I don't blame you. Like you were listening to the text and maybe your mind was like, I think I agree with all these things and I know all these words, but I'm not really sure how all the pieces fit together. If that's what you felt like, don't worry, I felt the same way reading this section. And that's actually because of a little bit of a grammatical uniqueness about this text. These first 14 verses in Greek, are all one sentence. It's all one sentence. Paul just keeps running on and adding on and putting on things. Like if you tried to diagram this in your English class, you would have a nightmare. But it's because his heart is overflowing with one big idea, one thing that he wants you to get, one phrase that will change your life, that will set the trajectory for a biblical church and a biblical Christian that will send them to eternity with Jesus. It's the words, in Christ. In Christ. If you look at the entire text, this is it, all 14 verses on one slide. Don't try to read it. But all those places where you see orange, 
That's in Christ. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. He says it over 10 times in these first 14 verses. And every commentator who reads this text will realize this is the main theme, not only of this text, but the entire book. In Christ. The foundation, fundamentally, of Christianity, of every church that is biblical, is it will be in Christ. And so that's what we're going to focus on today. Just this phrase, in Christ, what does it mean? How do we identify with it? And how does it set a trajectory for a biblical church? The idea of being in Christ is really an identity idea. Who do I believe myself to be? Who do I see myself to be? What Paul wants you to do is to identify, to see yourself as fundamentally in Christ. But before we get to working out exactly what that looks like, I think we just need to talk about the concept of identity. Um, I think if we were to ask you know, a person, what's your identity? And we would probably list any number of characteristics about ourselves, right? I'm a husband or a wife or a father, a mother, sister, brother, We might talk about our employment, I work for this company, or I own this company. We might talk about our ethnic heritage, right? I'm a born and raised Canadian, or I'm a first generation immigrant from wherever. Or maybe we talk about a trait, like I'm compassionate, or I'm thoughtful, or I'm patient, or I'm I'm intuitive, or you know, whatever the, the thing might be. That's what makes me who I am, what I believe myself to be. Uh, that's fine, uh, but identity really is a little bit deeper than that. It's not just your characteristics, it's what is your durable core, the foundation from which your very existence goes out into the world. It's the thing that you believe is most fundamental, the thing that whether your circumstances would change or not would still be true about you. Now, there have been two ways that society has generally gone at identity formation. How do I figure out who I am? Uh, The first of those is what I'm going to call traditional identity formation. You could also see this as like Eastern thought for the most part. We see this in, in the East. A traditional identity formation starts by identity being given to you by others. So the idea is you're born into a culture where there are already specific roles set out for certain types of people. So if you're a woman, this is your role. If you're a man, this is your role. If you are in a certain class, this is your role. Traditional identity formation is then affirmed by you as you live out that identity that has been given to you, right? Women are supposed to be this way, and you live your life as a woman in that vocation, that way. Men are supposed to be this way, we live this this way. Modern identity formation, or what might be called Western identity formation, what we're more familiar with here is actually the exact antithesis of traditional identity formation. Modern identity formation is that my identity is found within myself. It's something that I find within me, a thing that I believe to be true about me. And that modern identity is then affirmed by others. I tell you how I identify and you affirm me in my identity. Now, just to show you some really practical ways that this works out, because I realize it's a little bit abstract. Um, If you would meet somebody who is of Korean descent, Uh, you might find that because their culture is a traditional identity culture, that they will actually give you their family name first before their given name. So if I introduce myself, I introduce you to myself with my first name, which is my given name, and then my last name. But they actually do the opposite because they believe their family to be more of their identity than their specific individuality. In the West, an example of how this works out, I think it's easy to think about things like gender identity, but it's really far more fundamental than that. Like, the very question, what do I want to be when I grow up, 
is only a modern identity question, right? Because it's, it's looking inside myself to see what do I believe myself to be in order to project into my future. So that's how it plays out, right? I think it's pretty common. I think we understand it. Um, the problem with these ways of forming identity, though, is that they ultimately don't really work. Um, now, we are primarily modern identity folks, so I think it's easy for us to notice the things that are, are wrong about traditional identity formation. Like, the easiest one to see is that it suppresses the individuality of a person. Right, if you, for example, you're a woman and you're born into a culture where there's a traditional uh, female role that maybe you stay home with the children, right? If you are a talented, pick anything, athlete, business person, whatever, it doesn't matter. That part of your personality, that part of your gifts, it needs to be suppressed for the sake of the whole, for the sake of the culture. And that actually can help keep a society together. It's how it actually usually does better at holding a society together, but it obviously suppresses the individuality of a person. Um, the standards also that traditional identity formation are built on are moving standards. Right? They're not based on any sort of objective reality, they're based on the cultural values of the people that are around you. And those things aren't necessarily always good. So for example, let's say you're a man, you're born into a culture where uh, part of your identity as a culture is the men go out and they fight, and they go destroy other tribes or other nations and, colo and colonize those places. Well, you might live into that identity, but that identity is not necessarily a good thing. And finally, failure to live up to a given identity in traditional identity formation usually means a loss of honor, if not even a severing of ties from the community. Like, if you don't live into your identity that's been given to you, you are cut off. Because remember, the group is more valuable than the individual. And if we have to lose an individual for say, the sake of keeping the group together, we'll do it. Modern identity, though, has actually the exact same problems again in reverse. Uh, first of all, when, when you're given an identity in traditional identity formation, you live into that, right? The good thing about that, at least, is that it's given to you and you don't have to try to figure it out. But modern identity formation says that you find within yourself your identity. The issue with that is that we have competing identities inside every one of us. Give you a practical example of this. If you're a, a college university student, um, on the one hand, you might want to be carefree and fun, and you like to let loose, and in the words of the great philosopher Kesha, the party don't start till you walk in. But on the other hand, you also want to be a faithful student because you believe that if you do well in your classes, you're going to get a better job, et cetera, et cetera. Those two identities are very much in conflict with one another. So which one is the real you? because at some point you're going to have to pick one over the other. And there are numerous places where this happens in our identity formation. We ultimately don't actually pick who we truly are because there are parts of who we truly are that are in conflict with one another. And so how do you know you actually found the true you? How do you know you're not just actually acquiescing to an idea that's already been pushed upon you by your culture? I mean, just think about it like this. In our culture, it's pretty common for people to pursue careers that give them more money. Why? Because our culture perceives money as a symbol of status. And because we want to fit into the status hierarchy of our culture, we go after careers that make more money in general. That's not true of every culture. And so it might, it might feel like I really want to be a doctor or I really am a lawyer. There's at least some place where that's coming from the outside. And in a sense, then modern identity formation is just a veiled version of traditional identity formation. 
You also have the problem with the moving standard, right? If you're being affirmed by other people, then it doesn't matter who you really are. It matters what other people think of you, which is the same as traditional identity formation. And the idea of being cut off still exists there too. While you might not be cut off from the whole of your community, you're going to be something of a pariah to certain other parts of your community. And so modern identity formation has created what I think you can all very easily recognize in our society, which is a whole bunch of subgroups all trying to be selfish at the same time. So neither one really works. And if you didn't follow all that, that's okay. I just want you to see that the way that we form identity in our culture doesn't really work. We need something different. And that's why this idea of an in-Christ identity is so valuable. Because an in-Christ identity is given to you by God, and it's affirmed by God. It does not depend on you. Where traditional identity formation requires you to live up to a standard that has been put upon you by your culture or by your family, or modern identity formation says you have to be the real you and figure out who that is despite the difficulty that comes along with it, in Christ says who you are does not depend on you. Who you truly are does not depend on you. But it also says that who you are is immensely important. See, Hinduism has this idea that, that you are just a part of a whole, and even their idea of what happens at the end of time, that all souls go into this space called the all soul, which is like drops of water in an ocean. You don't have individuality even though you have a group identity. We don't have that. We have a group identity in Christ. We are all in Christ. And yet, every one of us is a part of the body of Christ, which is individual. Who you are is immensely important. Even though who you truly are has nothing to do with you. Now, I realize that's really abstract still. <laughs> and if you're still kind of like worrying on like, what does all that mean? It's okay. We're going to walk through the text. We're going to see how Paul describes an in-Christ identity. And then I want to give you a couple illustrations that will maybe help you drive home this idea of what it means to live in Christ. So if you are following along with the text, this is the time to open your Bible and follow with me. Paul starts his letter addressing it like a Roman would. Uh, he starts with his own name. He says, Paul, an apostle, Christ Jesus by the will of God. And then he addresses who it's to, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. So the, the identity of in Christ is that we have been given a status of faithful, which you know is not true of you, right? It's not true of me. We are not faithful. We are not faithful in our, our vocations. We are not faithful in our church attendance. We are not faithful in coming to the Lord's Supper. We are not faithful in forgiving. We are not faithful in our relationships. And yet, what Paul calls us is in Christ, we are faithful. Our status has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with Christ. He says to those ones who he perceives as faithful because they are in Christ, that there is grace and peace for them from God and from the Lord Jesus Christ. He then says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. All the spiritual blessings that God has, they are given to us, not because of who we are or that we deserve them, but that we are in Christ. And Christ receives all heavenly blessings because he is the creator of all good things. You receive them. And Paul starts to list, what are those spiritual blessings that you receive? Well, first, you were chosen in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. Like I said to the children, you have been chosen. 
You know that feeling you have when you're chosen for a sports team in grade school or you're chosen for a birthday party or, or even something as big as chosen by another human being to be their husband or their wife. You know how powerful that moment is. God chose you in Christ. He didn't look at your life to see whether you were worth choosing. He looked at Christ's life and said, Christ is worth choosing and you are in Christ. He continues then that in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Christ Jesus. He gave us a totally different status, right? An adopted child has one maybe name that even gets changed when they are adopted into a new family. Like their very identity was changed by being now in Christ. You are not your old self. You are the new self. He says he does this in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one, in Christ, he loves. So you receive by that adoption grace, forgiveness of sins, God's undeserved love. He then continues that in him, in Christ, we have redemption, which is the paying of a price to get something back. You're worth God's own blood. The death of Christ was the only thing that could possibly pay for you a price beyond measure, and yet it was given for you because you're in Christ. It's in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. And with wisdom and understanding, he's made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. So not only does he save you in Christ, but he also brings you into that salvation through Christ. That you hear Christ's word spoken to you. It is finished. I choose you. No one can take you out of my hand. This grace, this predestining, this choosing that God has done plays out in the times that reached their fulfillment in the death and resurrection of Christ to bring all things into unity in heaven and on earth under Christ. But then he keeps going and says, even after the death of resurrection of Jesus, in him, in Christ, we were also chosen, those who came after Christ's death and resurrection. And then finally, he says that in the same way that we, who were the first, to put our hope in Christ, might be for the players of his glory, and so also you. You too were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. And so how do you know that you're in Christ? You've heard his word. You believe his word. It brings you into him. And in that sense, everything that Christ is and everything that Christ has done, you are a participant in it. You're on the same team. You're included in him. Wherever Christ goes, you are there. Whatever Christ has done, you have done. Whatever Christ is capable of, you are capable of in him. That's the message of the gospel. So how does this play itself out? Let me give you a couple illustrations that maybe will help us drive home this idea. The first I want you to think about is a choir. To be in a choir is to be part of one body that is many parts. Your individuality matters in a choir. Right? Maybe you're a bass or a soprano or a tenor or an alto. You need a certain amount of those types of people in, in the body, in the choir, to make the choir sound good. But you can't just be a bass or an alto or a tenor or a soprano. You need to be a good singer. Your voice has to sound good. And therefore, your individuality matters. But once you are brought into the choir, that individuality then becomes part of a whole. And a choir is not just one person. It's multiple people. And yet it is heard as one voice. 
Remember we said when we studied Acts that the work of the church is actually Christ's mission that he is already accomplishing, but he is doing it through us. It is as if there is one big Christ who is going out into the world and every one of us is a voice within that Christ. And our individuality matters. The way the Bible talks about it is like a body. right? Hands and feet don't do the same job, but they're both necessary to the body. In the same way, who you are is immensely important even though who you truly are has nothing to do with you. Let's play it out into a couple other scenarios. This makes sense as you think across the history of the church. Right? It's as if we are the next newest member in the choir of the historic church. The church has been singing Christ's praises from the moment that God gave that first promise in Genesis that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And every voice has sounded different. It's been in different languages. It's been in different styles. And we're different too. And yet, we fit ourselves into the choir. We don't sing like a soloist trying to be different for the sake of being different. We fit ourselves and our uniqueness into the history of the church. That's why we value things like chancel furniture or liturgy or hymns or signs of the cross and blessings, all these things that are historic practices of the church. And yet, you know, we are unique. This happens in our congregation. In order to be the body of Christ, we have to be different which means there's going to be some of you who come from different backgrounds, have different values, have different opinions on things. Those things need to exist together. And the way they exist together is just like a choir. How do you sing in harmony? You sing different things while listening to each other. It's impossible to sing in harmony without listening to the other people who are singing. In the same way, the body of Christ, though we may be different in many different ways, we still listen to one another. We stay with each other, and we bring our voices together in praise to God. Another way to think about this is in a map. This is a map of the world, in case you didn't know. Where are you on that map? Got to make sure I get my lefts and my rights correct. You're on the left, right? Top left. I'm pretty sure you could use this map to figure out how to get to any other place on the planet. It'd be helpful for you to know if you're trying to get to, I don't know, the UK, you have to start going east. But just looking at this map doesn't put you in Great Britain. In Christ is not a, is not a set of beliefs or even a, a methodology that we follow. It is a, a state of being. And in the same way that looking at a map doesn't put you in the UK, or knowing the route to get to the UK doesn't put you in the UK, in the same way for people who call themselves Christians, knowing about Christ doesn't make you in Christ, and even following the right methodology or even reading the scripture, which is, in a sense, the map to Christ, does not put you in Christ. In Christ is functionally living every moment of your day as if you are under the rule of the king. And in the same way that you are in Canada right now and the rules and laws and rights and privileges of being a Canadian apply to you right now, being in Christ means that you understand the rules and rights and privileges of being in Christ and you live your life according to those things. It's so easy for us to believe that, well, because I kind of know that Jesus died for my sins, then I'm in Christ. 
Or it's easy for us to know a whole bunch of biblical theology, all the answers to all the abstract questions. That doesn't put us in Christ. To be in Christ is to functionally live like those things are true. Like those things apply to me. And especially in a world like ours, a nation like ours, where cultural Christianity is rampant, we need to test ourselves on this. Being in Christ is not a set of knowledge or a uh, methodology that we follow. It's, it's, a, it's living in the truth of what Christ has done. Last illustration then. Does anybody know who this is? It's a little bit abstract. Um, this is Hetty Green. Hetty Green was known as the Witch of Wall Street. Uh, in 1916, she died with uh, the wealth of uh, over a million dollars, which in today's money is astronomical. It's a huge number. She was a, an immensely rich woman. But the reason she was called the Witch of Wall Street is because she lived every day like she was poor. She wouldn't even heat up her oatmeal in the morning for breakfast because she didn't want to spend money on the utilities to heat it up. Her son had an infection in his leg that she could have paid for treatment but wasn't willing to, and so his leg had to be amputated. She was rich, but every day she lived like she was poor. And I fear that because we don't understand our status in Christ, our identity in Christ, we're just like Hetty Green spiritually. We are so rich, but we live every day like we're poor. You have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. Everything that God is, everything that God has, everything that God does is given to you. And yet we live our life scrounging for the pennies of what somebody thinks of me. Whether I'm going to have enough for retirement. Or whether my life is going to be comfortable. Or whether I'm going to stay healthy. We're so rich we live like we're poor. Brothers and sisters, you are in Christ. And that's the foundation of a biblical Christian church. So what does this look like? Well, we'll play it out when we get to chapters four through six. But for now, what I want you to realize is if you have a community who believes that, who believes that, that nothing can touch them because they are in Christ, then you become a beacon of light to this world. Like people can look at your community and say, that's what life should be like. When people who are different can love each other genuinely, who can see their reputation as something that has nothing to do with them and yet who they are is immensely important, that's how life should be. And we have access to that. So find your identity in Christ. Both your status, who God sees you to be, and in your purpose, who you live your life for. When you're worried about what's going to happen or who's going to think whatever about you, remember you are in Christ. No one can take that status away from you. God looks at you and says, you are my son, you are my daughter. With you I am well pleased because you are in Christ. And at the same time, you have a great purpose to be Christ's hands or feet or mouth or ears to this world to have your individuality, the things that God has made you uniquely to be as an instrument to spread this kind of identity to other people. So may those be the things that mark our church. Let's pray about it. Jesus, you've called us together to be in you, 
by our baptism, by your feeding of us, by your Lord's Supper, by the word that you preach to us. And yet how easy it is for us, God, to live like we're poor, to live like we barely have anything, to scrounge for the pennies of acknowledgement and identity that this world offers. Help us to see ourselves in Christ, both for our status and for our purpose, and make this church a beacon of light to this community of life, what life could really be like. We ask that in your name because only you can do it. Amen.